0: You will look with me in first Corinthians chapter twelve, and if you are visiting with us, we commonly go through books of the Bible verse by verse, and this is where we find ourselves today first Corinthians twelve we'll specifically be looking at verses twenty seven through thirty one um, and as I told you last week, I thought i'd get through it all this week, but we'll probably go another week as we get through this. I just, as I continue to dig, we see more and more of a need for great instruction in this area. So we'll continue to walk through this for uh, this week and next week as well. So my sermon this morning is a Healthy Church Body Part 2, and our key words for our worshipers and training are teachers, gifts, and members. Well, let's begin by reading in verse 12 of chapter 12. which are more presentable parts, do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you... Are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. As we look at this passage, you will recall from last week, as we looked at verses 12 through 26, there were three important aspects of this that I pointed out to you. The first was that Paul is drawing together the fact that the body consists with one another in unity that we experience great unity. This is a great work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit draws the people of God together and unites us in Christ. This is what we see in this picture that He's drawing for us of the actual body, the various parts of the body being linked together, and we are unified. We saw also... That while unified, we also see great diversity in the body of Christ. We see different types of gifts. Some have different gifts than others. Different types of people. We're all in different places in our walk with Christ. Some have walked with Christ for many years and are very mature in the faith. And others are just beginning. There's great diversity in the body of Christ, and yet in that diversity there remains great unity because of the unifying force of the Holy Spirit, because He is at work in each of our lives as believers. He indwells us, He unifies us, and He brings us to walk aside one another. We also saw interdependence. This is when Paul was speaking of An arm being useless without the rest of the body. Any single individual part of our body is absolutely useless without the rest of the body. We need one another. I need you, you need me, and we are helpless without each other. God has so designed the body of Christ that we need one another. And so there is great interdependence. So we are unified by the Holy Spirit, despite our differences, despite our diversity. In fact, our diversity lends itself to the body being greater, to the body being more useful and more able to fulfill the kingdom purposes. And our interdependence is that we need one another. So verse 27 really draws out the main point of this entire passage. Notice he speaks of unity. Now you are the body of Christ. So we see unity there. All the parts of the body together. We also see diversity. Individually you are members of it. So there's diversity that each of us individually has specific gifts, specific things that we bring to the table to serve the body of Christ, specific backgrounds and and things that we've walked through that we might relate to others, that we might use that God might use to bring about greater kingdom purposes. So we are unified as a body, yet we are individuals, there is great diversity, but there is great interdependence because individually we are members of the body. We are members of the body. We need one another to function properly. So, before we get into the remainder of this text, I want to point out um, very quickly um, eight things that we can say about spiritual gifts. What specific things about spiritual gifts are we looking at through this text that will help us to understand where we're going as he points to um, specific? Um, individual gifts first we see that spiritual gifts are essential to the body of christ this is why at the beginning of chapter 12 the apostle paul writes now concerning spiritual gifts brothers i do not want you to be uninformed why Why not be uninformed in these? Because they are essential to the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12, he speaks of the spiritual gifts being for the building up of the church, for the building up of the body. And so, spiritual gifts are essential. They are necessary. Secondly, we see of spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit is the source. Look again at verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So, spiritual gifts are present as a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source. He is the source of our gifts. Third, spiritual gifts unite us together and they never divide us. If there is division because of spiritual gifts, then we see counterfeits. Our spiritual gifts will never divide us. They will only unite us. Any division is evidence of a counterfeit. Look at verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So we see the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. And if there is division, then that would mean that God is divided. And we certainly know that is not true. So spiritual gifts serve to unite the body of Christ and not divide. Fourth, we see that spiritual gifts come in varieties. Look at the end of verse 11. It's speaking of the Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So each believer in Christ has been apportioned various gifts. So there are no cookie cutter spiritual gifts. No list that can be given, and in fact no list in the Scriptures, is exhaustive. We see broad categories of spiritual gifts in the Scriptures, and from those you might have uh, some gifting in one area and some gifting in another, and they unite together in you as an individual to give you a unique spiritual gift that is used for the body of Christ, to build up the body of Christ. So each of us possesses individual spiritual gifts that the Lord has apportioned to us through the Holy Spirit for the building up of the body. So we must be very careful not to try and put everyone in a very specific category because our gifts may vary a bit according to the Lord's purposes. Fifth, it is possible to have gifts given by the Holy Spirit, but to not use them. And as a result, we are depriving the body, and the body is suffering. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. So if we have spiritual gifts that we are not employing in the body of Christ, the entire body suffers. If I tie my arm behind my back, the rest of my body must compensate for that, must seek to make up for that shortfall. And so, if we have gifts, but those gifts are not being used, the rest of the body suffers. Number six, and important as you read through all the scriptures, spiritual gifts are also known as various other things. You may see them referred to, depending on your version, energizings, services, manifestations, grace gifts, or spirituals. These are various names that are given in the scriptures and various writings throughout church history in relationship to spiritual gifts. Seventh, all gifts are given to build the body. No spiritual gift is given for simply personal edification and growth. Every spiritual gift is given for the mutual edification. Look at verse 7. Again, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Spiritual gifts are for the common good of the body. And again, when we see gifts mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, we see that the Apostle Paul writes there, that the gifts are given... For building up the body of Christ. They're given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, these specific gifts that we will talk about, for building up the body of Christ. And so all spiritual gifts are gifts to the body of Christ for the building up of the body of Christ. And lastly, number eight, we must make a distinction between spiritual gifts and the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, which we read of in Galatians chapter 5, is to be manifest in the life of every believer. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit that comes from the Spirit dwelling within us and being at work within each of us. So we cannot look at the fruit of the Spirit and say, I don't have the gift of patience, (laughs) I don't have the gift of self control. Well, these are not spiritual gifts. They are the necessary fruit in a Christian life. We all must possess the fruit of the Spirit. It is evidence of our transformation. So these are eight things that are very necessary to know of, to remember as we look at spiritual gifts. So, if you uh, haven't engaged in this at all, or if you haven't ever thought of it, I will tell you that these passages uh, that we're looking at now on through um, the end of chapter 14, uh, especially in chapter 14 and the end of chapter 13, uh, we're addressing some very controversial passages. A lot of these things are very heavily debated in the church today. And entire denominations are formed because of these various debates. And um, I want to use this morning to jump into some of that because I think it is vitally important that we understand the distinctions and why we make those distinctions. And we will end with um, an important understanding of, uh, of why it is um, vital that we stand on certain ground as we look at these things. So first, we must look at this question of whether or not Paul makes a distinction between an office that one might hold in the church and a gift, and a spiritual gift. Some might say that, strictly speaking, in the Scriptures, when an apostle or a prophet is mentioned, for example, that... It's not speaking of a spiritual gift, but rather a specific office that one has held or is holding within the church. So they seek to make a distinction between a gift that a person has and a person that has that gift. So a gift and an office. But Paul does not make that distinction. And if you would like, look at Ephesians 4. We'll be referencing that several times because there is a parallel passage here. But Paul does not make that distinction. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, he writes this. When he ascends on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What gifts were those that he was talking about? Look down at verse 11. It says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. So, he's speaking of gifts, not simply offices. Those with gifts will hold office, but it is because they have these gifts. These gifts are vital to the church. So, Paul does not make the distinction. So apostles, prophets, miracles, healing, on and on and on. All these things that we see in First Corinthians and Ephesians chapter 4, we are speaking of specific gifts for the church. In fact, this word miracles that is used in 1 Corinthians 12 comes to mean miracle workers. And if you have King James, New King James, uh, New American Standard, I think all of those use that terminology, miracle workers. And so we see that there is no distinction made between one who does these things and one who has the gift. The office and the gift are one and the same. The second thing to ask of the text is, do any of the miraculous gifts assumed and described in the Bible continue in the church? Or are they given in the church today? So there are several positions on this. I'm going to um, speak of two of them, and they will um, broadly categorize uh, the rest of them. The first is a position called continuationism. This is the idea that today the church does not have apostles, but the church does have prophets, miracle workers, tongue speakers, interpreters those with the gift of healing, and on through the gifts. There are those who we would classify as um, being in a camp um, of charismatics who might say that there are apostles today. But the most prominent is continuationism. That would say there are no more apostles, but there are prophets, miracle workers, and on through the gifts. Now, it seems inconsistent that some of these miraculous gifts would cease, but not all of them. I believe it is inconsistent to say that there are specific miraculous gifts that remain and some that have gone away simply by picking and choosing which those might be. I will defend, and we believe here at Ephesus Church, and our confession teaches, um, a position called cessationism. And that is the belief that all miraculous gifts have ceased. Now, I want to clarify what I mean by that. Because this does not mean that God does not do miracles. We must be very clear with that. There is a difference between miracles happening and miraculous gifts being manifest. God did not pull out of His creation after the apostles died and the canon of Scripture was closed. God may very well, and I believe does, do miracles without doing them through specific individuals, without doing them through miracle workers. There's the distinction. So let me give you an example. If we are to gather together and pray for uh, someone who is very ill... Perhaps they have terminal cancer. And we were to go and visit them, and we are to find that they have been healed of their cancer. This is, no doubt, supernatural. This is miraculous. But it is not because of any individual person. It is not because of one who prayed had a gift of healing, and others who prayed did not. It is because God chose to manifest Himself in this way, to heal this person. They're called miracles because they are not common. As we look at nature, as we look at the way God has created all things to work in perfect order, it is not normal that these things happen the way that they do miraculously. They are uncommon But just because I pray and someone is healed as a result of that, does not mean I possess the gift of a miracle worker. God simply chose to listen to my prayer and to grant that healing. Now, most would agree that apostles are not given today. Not everyone agrees with that, but most would agree that there are no apostles in the church today. You will find some who call themselves apostles and who have said that they are apostles. um, And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I would argue that if this is true... All other miraculous gifts have ceased as well. And we'll talk a little this week, but especially get into next week, how these gifts cascade. If one ceases, then all the others that come after it must cease as well. Now, let me clarify. There is a difference between temporary gifts that have ceased for the inauguration, for the beginning, for the establishment of the church, with signs and wonders and permanent gifts that are given for the edification of the body, which we spent a lot of time talking about last week. So we must make the distinction between temporary gifts that were given to begin the church, to lay the foundation that the church may be built on that foundation, and those gifts that continue to be given for the edification of the body of Christ. So let's look at verse 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. We're going to talk about three of these, apostles, prophets, and teachers, this morning. It's important to realize that Paul is enumerating these purposely. First, second, and third. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, So we will speak first of apostles. Now, I'm not talking about today, as some of you may be aware of, that those who call themselves apostles, they show up in a white suit and take up 27 offerings and yell at everyone and real bossy. That's not what we mean by apostles. The Scriptures are very specific about what constitutes an apostle. Apostle. Let's look together at Acts chapter 1. Remember, Judas was an apostate. And after Judas went, he hung himself, and the apostles gathered together and they discussed the fact that they needed a replacement. They needed a replacement amongst the twelve to fulfill the prophecy of Psalm 109. Psalm 109 says that there will be twelve apostles, that there would be a replacement for the one who fell away. So we will see that the apostles were twelve men hand-selected by Jesus. The number twelve was established, and we see that all throughout The Bible, there are specific requirements for apostleship. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. We read, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So we see right here one requirement. As they're looking for a new apostle, this is one of the requirements. That he must be a man who has been with us all the time during Jesus' life and ministry beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. So they must have seen his ministry from his baptism all the way to being eyewitness to his resurrection, to his ascension. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So it is important to understand that this is a distinction that is made for the apostles in 1st John at the beginning of 1st John John writes that which was from the beginning which we have heard And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Who is the we that John keeps writing about? The apostles. He's testifying to the fact that the apostles have seen and felt and heard and experienced Jesus in the flesh. And so we see a requirement here for the apostles So the apostles cast lots and they selected a new apostle. So we see the twelve apostles established in the very beginning of Acts. Now, you will ask, well, what about the apostle Paul? And we'll talk about that in a minute. But Paul does define himself as an apostle as well. We see that um, in all of his letters, for the most part, but especially in Romans chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 1, he identifies himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So we see his apostolic position in the church. So, if you look at the requirements, we must admit that there are no apostles in the church today. There cannot be. They saw Jesus. They heard Jesus. They had a vital relationship with Jesus in the flesh. They saw Christ resurrected. They were eyewitness to His life. Okay, no one lives today who can make these claims. These were the requirements for an apostle of Christ. There are no apostles in the church today. So what about Paul? Did he meet these requirements to be called an apostle? Well, there is no question that he saw Christ, right? Knocked him off his horse. (laughs) Made himself very evident to Paul. He experienced the resurrected Christ. There are three different occasions in the Scriptures when Jesus came to Paul. So we see that Paul was also hand-selected by Jesus, communed with Jesus, saw and experienced the resurrected Christ. So Paul can be added to those who were apostles. So we see only 13 men. Only 13 men in the history of the world carry the distinction of apostles of Christ Jesus. There is no one today who meets the requirement for an apostle. And if someone tells you they're an apostle, they are a heretic. They are claiming authority that is equivalent with the Scriptures. Because it is the apostles who wrote the New Testament. And in addition to these things, we see that the apostles' lives were marked or they were accompanied. Their ministry was accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles. So everywhere they went, there were miracles being accomplished. There was healing by shadow, by word, people being raised from the dead. These things were evident in the ministry of the apostles. And so not only were they to be closely aligned with Jesus in person, but they also were marked by having the ability to perform signs and wonders and miracles. So, just so we're infinitely clear, handpicked by Jesus, witness His life, His death, His resurrection, accompanied by signs and wonders, and they wrote the Scriptures. They wrote the New Testament. Why is it that in Acts chapter 2, we see that the early church devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles? They devoted themselves to what is now the New Testament, to the words that the apostles were writing down, to the letters that were being distributed, to the things that the apostles had taught. So we too are devoting ourselves to the teaching of the apostles. We are right now. So the gift of Apostle is a non-transferable commission. It was given to 13 specific men. W.A. W. Criswell said this, Like delegates of a constitutional convention, when the work is done, the office ceases. The work of the Apostles was completed, therefore the office ceased. Interestingly, after Acts chapter 1, we hardly see anything at all about the gift of the Apostle. And in the epistles, there's nothing about them regarding the administration or the function of the church. That they are to be a part of the church as it carries on through history. Ones who lead and guide and serve. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the Apostles and the Prophets but not that they continue to function today. So once the foundation is poured, then the structure goes up. The foundation was poured by the apostles and the prophets. And we will see that this is the same thing with prophets in a minute. So you begin to see as you read through the establishment of the church, you begin to to see how the apostle, the office of apostle, the gift of the apostle, faded away. In Acts chapter 15 is the last time that we see all the apostles meeting together in the Jerusalem council. And interestingly, as they gathered together, none of the apostles were the ones who presided over that meeting. Who was it? It was James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And so we already see the office fading away and those responsibilities of leadership being given to those who were called as pastors and evangelists. So the apostles' role, why there were apostles, was to establish the foundation for the church by planting, by appointing elders and deacons as they went from place to place, By performing signs and wonders, but most importantly, by establishing the doctrine and setting a model for the church. We see the model established in the church that was established in Jerusalem. They established their doctrine by writing of the scripture. That is done. So there are no more apostles today. The doctrine is established and to add anything to that to make any additions to the doctrine that is already established, is to add to the Bible and to deny the sufficiency of Scripture. This is very, very important to understand. and We'll talk more about this in a few moments. Now, just to add to the confusion a little bit. In the New Testament, there are times when the word apostle is used in another sense. It's very important to understand the distinction. So we'll talk about those who we've already discussed, these 13 men, as Big A Apostles. Capital A Apostles. They are apostles of Christ. That is the distinction that they are given through the Bible. But the word apostle literally means sent one. So whoever is an apostle is a representative of whomever they are sent by. So, apostles of Christ are His direct legal representatives. They have a commission, they have a responsibility in their sending to be representatives of Christ. So, small a, little a, apostles are apostles of the church. Specifically, in 2 Corinthians 8.23, we see the word messengers used in The original language is uh, equivalent with the word for apostles. Philippians 2.25, we see the word messenger. So we understand that to be delegates. Those who are delegates sent out by the church. And in this sense, they do exist today. And this would be one who is a missionary or one who is sent as a delegate of the church Um, to, uh, to represent the body in certain matters, perhaps in some sort of meeting of the churches or something of that nature. So, an example of this. In the New Testament, we see the word elder used in various ways. One, an elder may be an older man. But we also see the term elder used for the office and the gift given to the church. Likewise, we see that a deacon is anyone who serves. But a deacon is also an office or a gift to the church. So an apostle is a legal representation of the church or a legal representative of Christ. We must be very careful in how we draw those distinctions. Is it speaking of one who is an apostle of Christ or representative, a delegate of the church? The false apostles of 2 Corinthians did not meet the requirements laid down for those who are apostles of Christ. Their teaching was inconsistent with the true apostles. And we see many today who make this claim and yet have inconsistent teachings with the Scripture. There are many who claim to have the same authority as the Scripture, There are many individuals, and in fact, there are apostate churches who claim to have the same authority of Scripture. Most grievous in this air is Rome, who claims to hold equivalent authority with the Scriptures. Is to deny the teaching of the apostles as authoritative and final. Second, Paul points to... Apostles being given as a, excuse me, prophets being given to the church as a gift. And we're going to cover prophets much more in depth in chapter 14. So we're not going to spend a lot of time here this morning. But this I will say. In the Old Testament, prophets clearly are identified and regulated as an institution that contributed prominently to the Old Testament canon. So we see all the writings of the Old Testament, and there's a prominent section of the major and minor prophets that make up the Old Testament. So there's no reason to think or to consider that New Testament prophecy is any different from that prophecy which we saw in the Old Testament. In fact, we should see them fundamentally as the very same. Now, when we think of that word prophet, I know most of us are probably thinking in terms of one who makes future predictions. So, in three weeks the sky will fall, or whatever. Okay, that's as we think of one who is a prophet or has a prophetic gift that they are able to make future predictions. But a prophet literally is one who is speaking forth or speaking for God a spokesperson for God. And we see that in the prophets of the Old Testament. They did make future predictions from time to time, but the vast majority of what they had to say was as spokesmen for God, pronouncing God's disappointment, His judgment, His wrath to come, and their need for repentance. Sometimes, also in the scriptures, we do not see a difference in the New Testament between apostles and prophets. Paul was called both. In Acts chapter 13, verse 1, he is called a prophet, but we also know that Paul was an apostle. But to make the distinction, apostles had a broad ministry to the church worldwide. They established local churches and they moved on and established more. They appointed teachers, they appointed elders in these churches and moved on. Prophets had a ministry to a local congregation. Prophets were given to the local church to speak revelation from God in addition to the teaching of the apostles. So they received revelation from God for a localized situation. So how did their revelation differ from the apostles? The apostles' revelation was doctrinal in nature. It was the doctrine. Here's what we believe and why we believe it. The prophets' revelation was practical in nature. And this was necessary until the scriptures were completed. We understand, and uh, we'll see in uh, Chapter 14, in a few weeks, verse 37, implies that the prophets were subject to the apostles. They did not simply um, go out and do as they pleased, but they were subject to the apostles in their proclamation of revelation from God until the completion of the New Testament. So, as the apostles were writing the New Testament, establishing doctrine, prophets were given practical revelation from God to the church. At the end of the Old Testament canon, what happened to the prophets? Once the Old Testament was completed, what happened with the prophets? We didn't hear anything else for about 450 years, right? Not until John the Baptist came on the scene. Why? Because the Old Testament Scriptures were completed up until that point. Any prophetic announcement was to be inscripturated, was to be Collected for the building up of the church. So the prophetic gift was useful during the foundation of the church and the development of the scriptures, but at the close of the scriptures and the death of the apostles, the prophets too were no longer necessary. The prophets were foundational. The words that they spoke were infallible, without error. And in some cases, they were canonized. They were put into the Scriptures. Therefore, they have ceased. We do not, and cannot, and should not add to the Scriptures. So, we'll talk more on the prophets in a few weeks. So, the church was established. The foundation of the church was laid by the apostles and the prophets. So, what's next? Well,. After the foundation is laid, the church needs teachers to teach what the apostles and the prophets have already established. And so, third, and lastly, what we'll look at today is the gift of teachers. Now, this gift is not accompanied by supernatural signs and wonders, nor is the gift of teachers foundational, infallible, or inscripturated. So teachers are given to the church, even today, to teach the Bible. In other words, to teach what the apostles had written down, what the apostles had communicated. And like all gifts, as we talked about last week, in order for one to be gifted as a teacher, it requires the Holy Spirit the gift of teacher requires a work of the holy spirit this is one who has the ability to understand and communicate biblical truth in clear and relevant manner with understanding and application and this is important because some people feel like they're very gifted but they may very well be to everyone else like the teacher in peanuts right wow 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 okay we don't understand necessarily what they're talking about because they may Be passionate about that. They may have a desire to do that, but not accompanied with a gift from God. They come with little or no relevance and clarity. So having knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures also does not necessarily mean that one has a gift of teaching. The gift of teaching also must include that those who hear what is being taught understand. You may very well have a great understanding of the Scriptures. You may have an incredible knowledge of all that the Bible teaches. But if you're not able to communicate that in a way that someone else might understand, you don't possess the gift of a teacher. That's okay. It's just not a gift that is worked in you by the Holy Spirit. So people with this gift of teacher, what are some identifying marks? They love to learn. They love to research, they love to tell others about what they're learning, they love to prepare, they think of illustrations, find examples, always reading, always thinking, how can I explain this to someone else so that they can understand it? Now this is very significant. The Scriptures point to the fact that all pastors, all elders are teachers. They must have the gift of teaching to be classified as an elder. 1 Timothy 3:2 says elders are apt to teach. They have the gift of a teacher. But not all teachers are equipped to be pastors and elders. There are various other requirements that are included in that. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 makes that distinction between pastors and teachers. So all elders, all pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. So, if you happen to be one who loves to read and study and research, are you able to pull it all together more naturally maybe than others are? Can you communicate effectively what you're learning, what you're preparing? Is your life marked by naturally always Trying to teach other people or help people see things in the way that you have learned them. Do you get really excited when, as you say things to others, they, they get it? The light bulb goes off, and you see that happen frequently. Does that excite you? Are there others that come to you for insight into the scriptures? If so, this may very well be a gift that you have as a teacher. How does this work out? Many different ways. For some, you might get really excited about the thought of a whiteboard in a classroom, PowerPoint slides, markers, all that good stuff. For some, it's one-on-one mentoring. We meet regularly, we go get coffee, we talk, we study, we, we get in, we dig in, and I get to see your life change, you get to see my life change, and we're working that out together. Perhaps for some, it's, it's counseling. Counseling. You just absolutely love to hear what is going on in people's lives, that you can help them work through those things with the Scriptures. That you can dig in and pour through and help them to see sin in their lives and their need for continued growth in the Gospel. For some, it's a large group. It's an auditorium. Maybe you're most comfortable with a lot of people. And for others, it may be a small group. It may be 10 or 12 people. As you gather together, you're very comfortable in that setting, leading discussions, asking questions, carrying that discussion along. Okay, so all of these gifts, you remember I said before, are manifest in different ways, and we see them carried out a little bit differently depending on who it is that possesses that gift. And so these are just a few examples. Preaching is a form of teaching, the very reason why pastors, elders, are called to be apt to teach. And sometimes preaching is more like teaching than others. So an example is today. There are a lot of things to teach on today. There's not as much by way of challenge or exhortation, but a lot of instruction. And I will say this, I absolutely love doing this. I love preaching. I love preaching here specifically at Ephesus because you are all very teachable. You have great theological stamina. You can hang in there for 45 minutes or so. Some places you get like 20 or 25 minutes max. Here, that's an intro. Some of you are very, very helpful when we preach. You offer gentle corrections when necessary. You challenge us with other parts of the Scriptures. That happens through the week. You're all very encouraging. I love that. I love preaching here especially. I feel the same as Charles Spurgeon. Someone once asked him, If there was no heaven, where would you want to be forever? And he said, The pulpit, because it's the next best place. I agree. All right, so... It took a while to get through um, those three. So, to start on the next one would begin a very long discussion. So, we'll end here and pick up next week on miracles, healing, helping, administrating, and tongues. So, you know that's easy, straightforward stuff, right? (laughs) But here's what's at stake very quickly before we leave. Here is what is at stake if we do not understand specifically the gift of apostle and prophet to have ceased today. The very scriptures themselves. The sufficiency, the power, the efficacy of the scriptures is at stake if we do not see that the office of the apostle and the office of the prophet has ceased today. That is very, very important. And to argue for the need of continued apostles and prophets and miraculous signs and wonders worked as gifts undermines the gospel, which has been established clearly by the teaching of the apostles, clearly defined in the closed canon of Scripture. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Not that one would see miracles and signs and wonders. These are not the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel. That which we have contained in the closed canon of scriptures. And so it is very important that we understand what these gifts were given for. Why they have ceased. And what still remain today. So we'll pick up on that thought next week. Let's pray together. Father, we are very thankful to gather and be instructed by Your Word. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to have greater understanding of what You have done and are doing in Your church. Lord, we are greatly indebted to the teaching of the apostles, to their lives, to their ministry, to their faithfulness and steadfastness. Lord, we are grateful that You have given Your Word to us, that You are not a distant, unknowable God, but that You have revealed to us all that is profitable for training in godliness. Father, help us to see the Scriptures not simply as words to learn, but as the very power with which You transform hearts and lives. Father, help us to love the Scriptures more and more. Help us to love the work that You have done in Your church and You continue to do in Your church. Help us to love the Bride of Christ and to love Christ. Lord, You are good to us. You are gracious and we're thankful for Your Word. We pray, Lord, that You would help us this week to think hard on these things, to consider all of the scriptures in light of your teaching, and that we would grow in faith and godliness and wisdom, that we may be more able to stand on the truth and not waver in love and grace, in peace, and in unity. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.